I would say that if you are debating, if you have enough knowledge, that is, that is already a good sign that you are being mindful about wanting to deliver a great experience for your students, about not wanting to, you know, overpromise, right? So, you know, so that's, that's step one. Um, I think the, the second thing after that is to realize that your level of expertise, it's, it's not, um, it's not an absolute, um, you know, line in the sand where it's like, oh, if you have X number of years, you can teach. If you have less than this number of experience, years of experience, you can't teach, right? It's not that at all. It really is relative to your student's experience. So if you are a couple steps ahead of your student, you have something to teach them, right? If you are, if you, you know, are, you know, somewhere here uh, and claiming to teach something that you um, aren't great at or to teach a, a student to target student that actually knows more than you, then, then, you know, don't do that. Right. But most people can think of themselves a couple years ago and the challenges that you were facing a couple years ago that you have since figured out. Right. So wherever you are, there are people who are a couple steps behind you who could benefit from your learning. Hi, friends and family. This is JJ Rescas, and this is another episode of Optimizing Me or Optimizandome in Spanish, the space where we invite top performers from different industries to learn from their stories, their ups and downs, their lessons, and mostly their mindset. Our guest today is a polymath. Over the years, she mastered and intersected multiple areas like marketing, leadership, brand identity, culture, storytelling, and more. She worked with brands like Gap, Old Navy, Banana Republic, and L'Oreal before becoming the co-founder of the Alt MBA with Seth Godin in 2014. Nowadays, she is the co-founder of Maven, a platform that supports content creators in disrupting the way that traditional education works. And we're going to talk about in depth about this topic today. She is the undisputed godmother of cohort-based courses and helped people like Nir Eyal, Sahil Bloom, and Pat Flynn create innovative and transformational experiences for their audiences. I'm personally super excited for this conversation because much of the work here at Optimizing Me is influenced by our guests' work. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Wes Keo. Hi, Wes. How are you doing? Really excited to be here today, JJ. Great. So let's start with three questions that are going to, to get us all into context. Who is Wes Kale? What is a cohort-based course? And how these two things relate? So I am co-founder of Maven. Uh, we're a platform that makes it really easy for experts to teach their expertise and their knowledge online and reach a global audience. Um, and this, actually, this relates to... Uh, to what courses are and what Maven is, because when I look back at my experience in school, I was not a great student. I found it hard to uh, stay focused, to grasp certain you know, topics and, and concepts that I felt like other students just got faster. Um, and I have a story from, from uh, when I was in college, freshman year of college at UC Berkeley, I took Calculus One. And I had high ambitions for my, you know, for my college career that I was going to get A's, I was going to do so well. First semester, calculus, I get a C. It was an 800-person lecture. 
I sat in the back of the room the entire time. The professor never turned around to face the class. Just, you know, always talked to the chalkboard. I pretty much slept at the back of the class the entire time. So the C was actually not surprising <laughs> given that I literally didn't learn anything. It might have been actually a good grade given how little I learned. Um, so I feel like this is, a, this is a little bit of a redemption story because years later, I was living and working in San Francisco and I was applying to business schools. And uh, and I had I had gotten waitlisted at one of them, and and they said, you know, Wes, we love you know your career experience, all the amazing projects you've led, but one thing does worry us, which is your quantitative grades in school were were kind of terrible, uh, including you know calculus one. So here was this this calculus class coming back years later to haunt me again, and and they gave me a choice. They said, you know, you can, you know, you can either submit your application as is. Or it would it would increase your chances greatly um, of of you know being accepted here if um, if you wanted to retake calculus and show us prove to us that you actually can do math and so it was this like white whale like situation um, and so I decided I decided to do it uh, and uh, this time the class was totally different I took it at a UC Berkeley extension course and there were only I want to say six or seven students in the entire class. The professor, uh, Professor Jurgen, was amazing. He made everyone sit in one row, the front row of the class. So all seven of us sitting in the front row. And every couple of minutes, he would have us um, trade off going down the line, one to the other, answering a different question that he had to make sure that everyone was with the rest of the group the entire time. No one was getting left behind. And I ended that class getting an A. And I was shocked. You know, this was not just about getting an A in this class. This was about changing my own mindset and view of myself and story about myself as someone who was bad at math. You know, this was kind of this narrative that I've had pretty much my entire life. And here was this transformative learning experience where I completely challenged that assumption because of the learning format, the small groups, the interactivity, a professor who really cared. Um, and and it really inspired me to think differently about education that you know there must be so many people out there who think i'm bad at writing i'm bad at math i'm just not good at numbers or i could never do science or i'm not good at whatever right and it could be that you know it's not that you're bad at that it's that the learning environment that where you learn that wasn't conducive to the way that you learn um and so that really inspires me to build something with maven that can uh, introduce a new format, this format that my co-founder and I named cohort-based courses, which is a concept that Seth Godin and I kicked off when we launched the Alt MBA. This idea that, you know, instead of learning being one directional, sage on stage, the expert knows everything, talks at everyone who just sits obediently and listens. What if we disrupted that model and said, you know, that's the old way. The new way is bi-directional learning, where yes, the student learns from the instructor. But the instructor also learns from the student and students learn from each other. So it's learning in, in, a, in a much more dynamic way where students are participatory. It's, it's an active experience. You are mentally engaged the entire time. Uh, you are responsible and accountable as a student to bring your A game. Um, and the community aspect, the aspect of really digging in and learning alongside other people who are excited to learn with you from an instructor who really cares and wants to be there uh, and who has done it before, who has walked the path that you want to walk. 
uh, I'm very, very excited by that and inspired by that. And that's what we're trying to build. Wow. Thank you. I don't, I don't think that, that I have heard that story in other podcasts that you have told. So well, I was pretty embarrassed really. about revealing, you know, my, my <laughs> shit grades for a while. So. <laughs> okay. I think uh, enough time has passed that, 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 that we can right, do it. Right. That is interesting. Now, this is obviously that moment in time, that moment in time that took you to this other path that is Maven. What happened in between? Because I'm curious, and I know that this this question may take even hours to answer. So um, it's not that's not my intention. But my my intention is to understand now that that I've seen the work that you've done in Alt MBA, which I am an alumni from. That now I can see a lot of the influence that you had on on Alt MBA and other ones like Tiago Fortes, um, building a second brain. Maven cohorts, obviously, and everything that is happening. What are the key elements that you would say that you had to hone? What are your sk the skills that other people may not consider important enough to hone, but that you realize that you needed to hone that got you to this point, unbeknownst to you, probably? Yeah, I love this question. I think that, you know, a lot of times when people think of the term generalist, uh, there's kind of a a neutral, if not negative connotation where it's kind of like, oh, a generalist must be someone who just isn't particularly good at anything. You know, I actually think that a generalist is someone who is good at a bunch of different things. A very good generalist is good at a bunch of different things. And so I think throughout my career, I focused on marketing, on customer acquisition, on brand building, category creation. But a lot of that work is informed by um, knowing at least the basics, the fundamentals of a bunch of different areas um, and, and getting interested in adjacent areas besides marketing. So sales is huge. Uh, project management, um, business analysis, um, becoming detail-oriented enough to be able to, uh, to catch different things before you, know, you publish and it, it might influence you know, the entire brand. Uh, writing, right? So these are all skills that I've, I've worked on throughout the years. I would say that there were a couple formative experiences for me. Um, the first was right out of school, I worked at Gap Corporate um, and I did a rotational training program that was a year long and then eventually became a business analyst. Um, and, you know, mind you, this is right after college, right after, right after all of my, you know, bad grades in, in anything quantitative. Um, and so I was shocked that this global corporation was hiring me to be a business analyst in a role that was 100% numbers driven, right? right? Like I was kind of like, okay, there must be a mistake here. And, <laughs> and, I, and I knew that I knew that this was going to be very hard for me, right? Because usually, usually the common wisdom is choose an area that you are good at, that you are excited about and work, right? Develop your career in that area, right? So this is my first job out of school. And I was going into an area that was very difficult for me that did not come naturally around numbers, right? Um, I decided to still do it because I thought that it was an incredible opportunity to learn how to build, uh, how to develop business fundamentals around uh, understanding numbers, reading numbers, being less afraid of data, right? Um, and it was an amazing training opportunity where, you know, I, I remember um, one of my first weeks there just looking at all these different spreadsheets and being like, I literally do not understand anything. Like this is like a foreign language. These numbers mean nothing to me, right? And by the end of my experience there, 
uh, I was excited to to grab a spreadsheet and try to piece together and figure out what is the story say in these numbers? What is the customer telling us about their buying behavior, about trends from, you know, uh, this season or, you know, the past year or the past three years? What are trends that we can see? What's percent contribution uh, and, you know, variance that we can look at? Um, and so I think one of my big lessons is, you know, if there is something that you are very afraid of, that you're very bad at, you could spend your entire life trying to avoid that or you can get good enough at it that it stops being a blocker for you. You don't need to make that your main thing because you're never going to be as good at it or better at it than someone where it comes naturally for them, right? Um, but but it is useful to have it not be something that um, prevents you from advancing in your career. So I feel like really early on, developing um, the ability to think analytically was super important. Uh, and this was over 15 years ago now. And I still think about all of the lessons that I learned from being a business analyst at Gap. Uh, the way that, even though I don't work a ton with numbers today, um, the the way it sharpened my analytical ability is something that's very ap- applicable everywhere. Um, so that was one. Um, I think the other big area that, um, that I found to be um, much more important than people realize is uh, detail orientation, being detailed, being being um, being able to manage projects and and manage moving parts. So I used to be not very detail oriented either. Like I remember, you know, um, forgetting to turn in homework assignments, forgetting that a project was due, forgetting dates for this and that. So I've built a lot of systems for myself to uh, remember different things, and I live by my calendar. Uh, I block things off. I have reminders in there. Um, if do I don't have any, in my any, calendar, any, I won't remember to do it. Do you have any that? system that you do you have any system that you remember that you can say this is something that changed in, in the way that I, I do have up? an assistant uh, that I started working with a couple months ago, but these are systems that I built long before that. So Correct. even without an assistant, um, those systems helped a ton. Mm-hmm. So um, and I think that's important. I think you want to be self-sufficient enough to mm-hmm. not need to rely on someone else to kind of right. get your act together, you know? So for me, um, learning to be, uh, learning to catch minor errors, learning to, mm. um, think about holistically making sure that whatever I'm executing is, um, you know, is the strongest version of what I can present. Um, I think that's super important. And I see a lot of people who kind of scoff at the idea of being detailed because they think like, Oh, like, Oh, like that, that shouldn't be that important, right? Like I have, you know, these big ideas. I want to work on strategy. I want to do all these big things. But if you can't handle the details well enough, then you can't be trusted to handle anything more complex than just the basic things. So I think that that's another area where, um, where, you know, you don't have to be the most detail-oriented person ever, mm-hmm. but like you also don't want it to be something where you're you're seen as uh, someone who does sloppy execution or that you always forget this, or you always need someone to, to check your work before it can be released to customers, right? Like you don't want to mm-hmm. be that person. Um, so yeah, so I feel like there were, there were these couple different areas that for me used to be blockers for my ability to, to do the work that I wanted to do that once I handled those and, uh, and addressed them really helped my career be able to move forward, uh, at a, at a mm-hmm. velocity that I was excited about. 
That is so interesting because, the, like you said, the majority of, of, of business gurus, let's say even Peter Drucker or something like that, they say, focus on your strengths, forget about your weaknesses. In this case, what I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, it is, yes, focus on your strengths and your weaknesses. They, you just need to get them at a level that are, that are good enough. Exactly. Yes. I am all for focusing on strengths. So, you know, after a certain point of, of um, making sure your weaknesses are no longer actively stopping you from accomplishing your goals, then you definitely want to go all in your strengths. Um, but yeah, I just think it's a shame if, you know, you have these big dreams and you have big plans, big ambitions, but there are these, these blockers, you know, that, that will kind of just haunt you unless you figure them out. Nice. Let me tie this, Wes, into the leadership aspect because you are also a reference in leadership. And based on the skills that you are that you are mentioning, for example, the this one that you mentioned, like thinking analytically, which sounds like what you call it thinking, um, rigorous thinking, correct? Exactly. That is one of the frameworks that you have. And the other one that I found interesting is the learning to catch your own errors. How do you exercise those ones or how did you get into the habit of using them? Because many people will, usually in the, in the, in the traditional education, they will read about it and they think that they already got the knowledge, air quote, knowledge. And from that point on, Yes, I theoretically got it, but in, in essence, they don't. How do you make sure that you're doing the reps? Yeah, reading about something versus actually trying it. It's kind of like it's kind of like reading about swimming versus actually getting in the water and seeing if you can swim. It's like those are two very, very different things. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think reading about a topic is definitely a start. I think that is great. Like you want to expose yourself to different ideas to start um, – start reading about different people's experiences, but nothing replaces actually trying something yourself. So I think for me with, with learning to become more detailed, um, it was, it was a, a experience early in my career. Actually, this was during college. Um, I did an internship, um, and, uh, at a, at a PR firm. And, um, I remember at the time thinking that I was pretty detailed. It's kind of funny because I feel like when you're bad at something, you're like, oh, I'm pretty, I'm probably pretty good at it or at least average, right? So, so I remember at the time thinking like, oh, I'm, this is not something I need to work on. Um, and I remember one of the, the, the higher up saying that, you know, they wanted me to clean up a spreadsheet, uh, make it, make it clean, make it more organized. Um, and so they sent me this, this Excel sheet, uh, and I, you know, I did some stuff on it, sent it back. And, um, and, and, and the guy was just like, this is terrible. Like, this is so bad. And he pointed out, you know, 20 things that I had missed. Um, and, you know, the, the font sizes, you know, the fonts were different. The, the text sizes were different. There, there were like random grid lines in some parts, but not others. Um, and just like, he like pointed out all these different things. And I remember just being amazed. Like, first, I think I was, you know, terribly embarrassed. And then the next thing I was like, pretty excited that like, wow, like I did not see any of this until he pointed it out. And, and once I saw it, it was like, I couldn't unsee it, you know? And, and it actually was really exciting because I think that, that as professionals, learning to see in new ways is one of the most exciting things, right? It's like, we go through life, like seeing at a certain level, and then someone points something out or shares feedback with us or, or, uh, point out something that we didn't notice before. And all of a sudden, you, it's like your, your world has now opened up a new layer. You know, it's like you were seeing in black and white and now you can see in color and, and, and all that color was there the entire time, but you just couldn't see it, you know? 
So for me, someone giving me really direct feedback about the areas that I'd missed, the gaps that I that I didn't even see, um, was was very inspiring for me and prompted me to to look for these other areas where, hey, like you know, I thought I was doing fine before, but what are all these different things that that I that I don't even see, you know? Um, and sometimes it's hard to even know what excellent looks like if what you're kind of used to or the, you know, you don't have points of comparison, right? So you're kind of like, oh, like, yeah, my strategy doc looks pretty good or, you know, my write-up looks pretty good, um, you know, and so you don't have another point of comparison, which is why every time that I notice something that is executed very well, I make a note of it. I add it to my swipe file. I share it with my team. I analyze what did they do well? You know, this even this isn't even just things that are customer facing or or you know building public. This is internal stuff too. Like the other day, I saw uh, one of my team members had um, a Notion doc, created a Notion doc that um, was super well organized. There was great information hierarchy, you know. And usually, when you think of organized, you think like, oh, you know, is an executive assistant organized? Okay, like that's such a like a lowly trait or whatever. But there's information hierarchy and and um, a lot of uh, rigorous thinking that goes into making something easy for your audience to consume, right? So this Notion doc, the way that it was organized, the different toggles, um, the way that the argument was laid out, the, it had the right amount of detail on the right things. It wasn't just like all over the place, this, you know, hard to consume. Um, and it really took the cognitive load off of me, the reader. And I remember thinking like, wow, like this is, this is sharp. Like this helps me understand what they are thinking, why they are presenting this, why we should do this, the risks involved and what we're going to do about it. Like all of it just was so cohesive. Um, and so, you know, anytime that you notice that someone has done something that lands really well with you, don't just be like, okay, that was great. Moving on to the next thing, you know, really stop for a moment and dissect and try to understand what made it so good. So that when you do something like that, when you create your next Notion doc, when you do a write-up, you can incorporate elements of that and and continually make your own work stronger. Yeah, it's so what I'm hearing is once you got this feedback on your sloppy work on, on your initial job, you did not take it as a critique to your to yourself, but instead, obviously, the work that you have done. And, and that is one way to accelerate feedback. The other way is the one that you're pointing out, which is when something is properly done, how can we learn from it and replicate it? Because that is the, the end goal of all of this, right? Not just once in a lifetime that it happens and, and not exactly. being able to replicate yes. Being able to replicate something is uh, is kind of quite high level of a goal. Not replicate as in copy directly, but replicate the the impact that it had. So your Notion doc might look different than this other one that your colleague wrote that was great, but you sure. want it to land as strongly. You want it to land in the same way where the person receives it and is like, wow, like that's well-structured. This is organized. I feel like you know what you're talking about. You're a competent mm -hmm. individual. Um, so yeah, thinking about how do I, how do I incorporate this into my own work? How do I practice and try to execute in the same way? Um, you will probably realize that it's harder than it looks. Um, cause anytime that you try to put, you know, theory into practice, there are usually hiccups along the way. That's what real learning is. So that's totally normal. Um, uh, but don't get frustrated. Keep trying, keep, keep, um, keep iterating until you 
mm. come to something that you are happy with that reaches the result that that you want to reach. Wesk, what is the name of that framework that you have that starts the the process of iteration? You have a framework that is the I'm trying to recall right now the first shitty draft. Oh, shitty first draft. Yes, SFDs. Yes, that's a concept from um, Anne Lamott from Bird by Bird. Uh, she's an author who um, has this amazing book about um, about writing and the craft of writing. Um, and she came up with the term shitty first drafts, and we use that throughout uh, Maven Course Accelerator. So this is the, the beginning of, of, of the iterative process. And probably that uh, Notion doc that you found did not start like that. <laughs> Maybe it did not even start like that, but it, it went through several iterations. So now how did this tie into into the CVCs, into the first creation of a CVC, because many people, they think that they don't know enough to teach someone, or even though they do not agree with the way that traditional education um, works, they're still not fully faithful. They're not, they, they don't believe in themselves thinking that, oh, I don't know where to start and things should, should change. And I know that the knowledge that I have may help someone, but it's just stops at, at a hopeful dream instead of taking action. How do you guys help in, in Maven to this kind of people? Yeah, I love this question. One thing that I find kind of ironic and, uh, and, and kind of funny is that some of the best instructors that I've seen started out thinking that maybe they didn't have anything to teach people. Um, which is just shocking to me because I think that there are, there are a bunch of people who are not worried about this at all who are not self-conscious about this at all, they are going out and, and, you know, teaching and sharing what they know. And, and many of them are not as qualified as people who are more thoughtful about whether they have enough knowledge. So I would say that if you are debating, if you have enough knowledge, that is, that is already a good sign that you are being mindful about wanting to deliver a great experience for your students about not wanting to, you know, over promise. Right. So, you know, so that's, that's step one. Um, I think the, the second thing after that is to realize that, your level of expertise, it's, it's not, um, it's not an absolute, um, you know, line in the sand where it's like, oh, if you have X number of years, you can teach. If you have less than this number of experience, years of experience, you can't teach, right? It's not that at all. It really is relative to your student's experience. So if you are a couple steps ahead of your student, you have something to teach them, right? If you are, if you, you know, are, you know, somewhere here uh, and claiming to teach something that you um, aren't great at or to teach a, a student, to target student that actually knows more than you, then, then you know, don't do that, right? But most people can think of themselves a couple years ago and the challenges that you were facing a couple years ago that you have since figured out, right? So wherever you are, there are people who are a couple steps behind you who could benefit from your learning. So I really think that this shift from thinking about it as in terms of like absolute, you know, amount of experience before, you know, you cross some threshold where you can teach, you know, not thinking about it that way, but more thinking about it in terms of, in terms of uh, relative terms with where you are versus your student. Hmm, got it. And so this one takes me to go back. Let's, let's, let's go back to the CBC model. Um, nowadays you have plenty of instructors 
in so many different areas, right? So what is the mission of, of actually Maven? How, how did, let's take a little, bit of, a little bit of the story of Maven and how you guys are impacting traditional education, please. Yeah, I think traditional higher education is pretty cost prohibitive, pretty expensive for many people. Um, and, you know, we don't plan on replacing higher education anytime soon. I think there's, a, there's you know, deep roots with higher education, but we do want to present an alternative for people who are looking for one, especially for adult learners. If you think about uh, formal learning, you do, you do kindergarten through 12th grade, and then you do four years of college. Some people do a master's degree, right? You know, fewer people do a PhD, but for most people, formal learning stops after college. And so after the age of 21, 22, until you're, I don't know, 50 or 60, where are you learning in a formal capacity? Like there is no place really, you know, we are still learning on the job from coworkers, from, you know, uh, articles that we read, communities that we're in, news sources, you know, publications. We're learning informally though. And a lot of that is kind of piecing together the things that you need to know in kind of a, a little bit of a disjointed way. Um, and so what we're really excited about is offering experts who have deep operational experience in modern relevant fields uh, and connecting them with students who are um, in those roles trying to learn. You know, so if you are uh, this, the, the sole marketer at a startup, right, you're learning a lot on your own and wouldn't it be great to learn from uh, someone who was an early marketer at uh, at a, a fast-growing company who can share what are the systems that they put in place, what are the tools that they used, uh, what are the principles that they really relied on, what are the frameworks that they found most helpful, and then to do that with a cohort of a hundred other solo, you know, sole marketers at their own companies. Like all of a sudden, your journey becomes a lot less lonely. You are not just the only one on an island figuring out yourself. You now have ninety-nine friends who you can learn from and share ideas with, right? And so just being surrounded by the energy that I think was so inspiring for all of us when we went to college, right? It wasn't just about the classroom. It was about the energy of being around other other people with dreams and other people with ambitions and goals and, and projects that they were working on, really bringing that energy um, to uh, continuing education and to adult learners who uh, want to continue sharpening their skills, whether that is in product management, whether that's in people management, leadership, or in you know accounting and finance, or uh, or customer success, whatever that might be, there are other people who are in your shoes, who are in your situation, uh, who want to learn the same thing that you can be in community with, um, and there are experts who uh, were in your shoes years ago who can teach you what they learned and um, and hopefully prevent some of the the trials and tribulations, the scrapes on the knees from, from doing everything through trial and error. One of the things that personally I love from CBC's cohort-based courses is that we have the chance to have direct contact, like you said, with experts. Sometimes uh, I think because of the way that traditional education worked is that you see this 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 professor, this teacher, this mentor, so far ahead away from you, and you cannot reach out to this person. And the only way is probably through books, or if you would be super lucky and you access an, a university where they teach something like that. But with CBCs, what I'm seeing is that the the, the content, the connection, I should say, it is is so direct. Now, in your case, let me ask you this: 
how did you start getting yourself in front of top companies, top industries? What challenges had to had to go through so that you can learn these things that now other people are, are like like me, we're accessing in, in easier ways. How did you put yourself in in front of those big players? Yeah, I think some people um, look at some of the the brands and people that I've worked with and assume that um, that you know things have have always been successful for me. Um, but I actually have gotten rejected many, many times, more times than I can count. I've, I've applied to so many jobs I got rejected from, uh, to clients that, you know, didn't want to work with me. So, so I think that is, um, it's, I want to share that because, uh, you can, you can look at other people who have, you know, an interesting career. Um, you know, they worked with, with interesting brands, interesting people, um, interesting roles. And, and it's really to think like, oh, it's easy to think I could never do that. You know, like there was something special about that person. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of it is just showing up over and over again and figuring out how you can add value and developing yourself to become someone who can add value. So a common question that I get is, you know, how did you start working with Seth Godin? The Seth Godin, right? Like how did this happen? There are so few people in the world who have worked directly with him, much less for three years uh, in a really close capacity. And it was very serendipitous. So at the time I, uh, was at an ad tech startup backed by Sequoia Capital, um, in San Francisco and was looking to move to New York. And I happened to see a blog post that Seth had, which said, Hey, I'm looking for a special projects lead for a six month project, uh, to help me figure out what I should do next. You know, at the time he had just sold his last company, which he had worked on for eight years and was kind of at a crossroads, figuring out what is the next big thing that I should invest in. Um, and I saw that very coincidentally, um, and I decided to apply. So, you know, I thought there must be thousands of other people applying. I don't want to get my hopes up. So, you know, there was a, a written application. There was a, a video that you had to film. Um, in the video, the prompt it was something like, you know, tell us what you want to contribute, what you want to learn, what you want to build, something like that. And I did my video in one take. You know, normally, normally if I had thought I had a chance, I probably would have done it like, I don't know, 12 times or something, but I did it in one take thinking, I don't want to get my hopes up. I'm probably not going to get this anyway. And a couple of days later, I see Seth Godin in my inbox and he's like, Hey, I saw your video, loved what you talked about. I think, you know, this could be an interesting fit. Let's hop on a call for an interview. We did, well, you know, multiple rounds of interviews. Uh, and you know, I was, I was jumping up and down in my, my living room. Um, but of course wrote a very calm reply, you know, saying like, yes, like great, like, you know, figuring out the schedule. Um, so, so I think, I think my first lesson, um, and from this is, is always apply, always put yourself out there. You know, like, I think, a lot of us take ourselves out of the running, take ourselves out of the race before the race even started because we think, oh, we're not qualified enough. There's so many other people who are applying. I'm never going to get it. And then you just never end up showing up, you know? So I think continuing to show up, put your, put your, put your hat in the ring is, is super important. I think the other thing is um, at that time, I think I had uh, eight or so years of experience already um, working at a bunch of interesting brands uh, on uh, uh, developing, uh, my skills in the function of marketing, customer acquisition, uh, brand management. Um, and so I had a lot of experience to build off of and to offer. 
Um, and in addition to that, I was also active in various side projects for, for a long time. Um, so, you know, at the time I was running an event series, storytelling event series, like a, a series of salon talks. Um, and so I was doing that, uh, uh, in high school, I founded a nonprofit organization that donated backpacks and school supplies to underprivileged kids. So I'd always had various projects and a very entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, and also I'd written my blog since 2010. So it's 2022 now. So it's been 12 years uh, since I've started writing. Um, and there were there were years when I wrote more, years when I wrote less. Um, the year before I started Maven, I think I had um, 43 articles. So almost on a weekly basis. And then I started Maven and I think that year, 20. 20, uh, 2020, was it 2020? Yeah. 2020. I had like five articles because, you know, I was a full-time startup founder at that time, but, but, you know, there were years when I wrote more years when I wrote less, but I was always, um, actively thinking about my craft, about marketing, about sales, about customer acquisition, uh, about growth. Um, and so I was able to, to bring a lot to the table and say, Hey, I have all these skills that I want to bring to help you, uh, you know, to help you, whether that's a client, whether that's an organization, whether that's Seth Godin or whatever. Um, so I think, I think that's, uh, that's something else that I would really encourage people to do is, is think about building your skill set so that you have, you have value to offer, uh, to, to the kinds of people that you want to work with. Um, and then with, you know, with after Alt MBA, um, I worked with clients like professor Scott Galloway, the co-founders of morning brew, um, uh, Susie Batiz, who co-founded, uh, who founded and was CEO of Poopery, uh, with William Urey, who wrote, uh, several, uh, seminal negotiation books that are kind of staples at, at all business schools. Um, so yeah, I worked with Outlier, who was co-founded by, um, that was co-founded by the, the co-founder of Masterclass. So I worked with a bunch of really interesting companies, um, and all of those clients came in through word of mouth. So those were all literally from people who uh, had seen my work before, had seen my proof of work, you know, on the internet and, you know, from other companies that I'd worked on and built um, and been like, hey, like, we think you can help us, you know? Um, and so, so instead of, I think, I think a lot of people focus too much on um, trying to, to uh, market themselves or grow their audience or like, um, kind of focus on on some things that that come that are important, but but maybe a little downstream. Whereas the upstream areas that you should focus on um, is being able to deliver. That is that's super super important. You don't want to focus on growing your audience at the expense of being really good at your craft. You want to be really good at your craft and also have an audience because otherwise you're going to get you know these referrals. You're going to get clients. You're going to get people wanting to work with you. Um, and then once they work with you, they're going to be like, oh, actually, like, this was not that, like, this was not that rigorous, right? Or like, you weren't, you know, it was too surface level, or you weren't really able to help us. Like, so, so you want to really make sure um, that you have a strong foundation of value that you can provide, that you can come in and really drive results for whoever it is that, that you're going to work with. Because, you know, word of mouth is real and, and uh, clients talk to each other and, and customers talk to each other. So you want to make sure that you are delivering real value. And then of course, you know, growing your audience and, and making sure people know who you are and how to find you. Of course, that's important too. Um, but not at the expense of being able to, to actually deliver value. 
Correct. Uh -huh. But now that I think about it, it's like becoming a, an NBA or a soccer star and not practicing, just getting the photos and, uh, and the ads, exactly. but forgetting about going to trade. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You actually have to be good at basketball. Like that's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, I feel like many people like don't think about that piece, you know, and they jump ahead to like, oh, well, I want people to know how to find me or to, you know, to, to listen to me and stuff. Um, but yeah, like you have to, you actually have to be good at your craft. Uh -huh. Wow. Got it. Yeah. No, I, I, I got it in my mind now that I'm not going to forget with that metaphor. <laughs> Let me ask you now with some, some, some um, questions and finalizing the, the interview. And most of them are rapid fire questions, which are now on you, how you perform as a top performer. What's, what's the, the daily, daily habits that you have or stories or things that make you function at, a, at an optimal level. So let, let me first ask, what are your daily habits that you do it every day that get you on top of everything? Yeah. So I would say that, um, in terms of daily habits, let's see, I block off my day. So that the mornings, I don't have meetings. It's deep work time in the mornings and then 12 to 6 PM are meetings. And then after six, it's deep work time again. So I think blocking off time for your brain to, to be creative and not be distracted every few minutes by a Slack message or by needing to task switch into another meeting, I think that kind of sets you up for success. Um, the other part of, of, of you know being as strong of a performer as you can, though, I don't think it has as much to do with more tactical um, productivity or, or scheduling type things. I think it's more... Um, really questioning whether what you are working on is what you should be working on mm. and, and thinking about the ROI of, of what you're working on. Um, and, and thinking about things like scope, you know, I think too often people bite off a huge chunk of something and make something bigger than it needs to be. Whereas if it were a smaller thing, you could still get 90% of, um, the upside from doing that thing. So I'd put this broadly under the, the bucket of thinking rigorously, thinking about the upside, the downside, trade-offs, thinking about, you know, is this really, does this really make sense? You know, I think sometimes uh, we we do something and then we, we repeat it thinking that, oh, you know, this probably still makes sense. But in the meantime, the uh, your situation has changed, right? And what you were doing before doesn't actually apply anymore and isn't actually the right thing anymore. So thinking rigorously, challenging yourself to think rigorously, I would say is, is one of the best things that you can do. Can you briefly explain to the audience what are ways that you train yourself to think rigor rigorously on a on a frequent basis, please? Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's an interesting one. Um, well, I I have an article on rigorous thinking where I mention fifteen to twenty questions that you can ask yourself. Um, and then the other thing is the benefit of being surrounded by other rigorous people. That's, you know, it's one thing to ask yourself and try to catch things yourself. But sometimes um, it's like my friend Sarah Peck says, it's like reading, it's trying to read the label of a jar from inside the jar. Um, hmm. And which is hard, right? Like it's hard sometimes to catch things that you might be doing that just feel normal, more normal for you. So um, being surrounded by other people who are rigorous, who can call you out is really great, right? And then you can call each other out and poke holes in, in each other's 
uh, arguments and line of thinking and then be able to fill those holes and, and make something better before you actually uh, start executing on it. So um, being surrounded by other rigorous people, giving them permission and encouraging them to poke holes in your thinking and to call out if they think differently, you know, to, to, to encourage them to do that. You know, you don't want to be someone where someone is afraid to disagree with you or to point out a different line of thinking because they're afraid you're going to get upset or defensive. Um, you know, and especially as a leader, you need to constantly remind people of this because people are naturally a little bit scared of you given the power dynamic already. So, um, I always like reminding my team, like, you know, what do you think? And like, Hey, if you think differently, like definitely speak up, right? Like this is, this is how I'm thinking about it now, but they're, they're, you know, I might be missing something, right. Or like, you know, do you think differently on this? Like, what do you think? Like really encouraging that and, and soliciting that feedback and encouraging them to help you think more rigorously and, and poke holes in, yeah. in the way that you're currently thinking. Wow. And, and that requires courage and vulnerability, like you said, which creates connection, which creates connection between, between the team members. And, um, just to add on, on top of this, this is the idea that is coming to my mind is, is thinking about this ROI of what I am doing and, sharing this with another person to see if they can poke holes on this one also enables uh, what I would say is um, second and third order consequences of exactly. what I am doing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think one more thing is um, sometimes I think all of us can get too caught up in um, the kind of the mechanics of executing something of trying to reach mm. some numerical goal or, you know, executing a certain plan. Um, and it's helpful to step back and think about whether this plan is still the plan that we should execute. Is this really something you feel conviction mm. about? I think a lot about conviction. You know, I never want to do something where I'm like, not really sure if this is the right thing, but I'm just kind of doing it. You know, like you, as a leader, especially you want to reach conviction. You want to truly deeply mm. believe that what we are doing here is the best way to get to our goal is the best way to get to our outcome is the smartest way to get to our outcome, you know? And if, and, and sometimes I think it's, it's easy for teams to kind of think like, okay, so this is our goal. Here's a plan that kind of logically makes sense. And, and we're just going to start doing it. Whereas like, you know, like you really want to step back and be like, do I really believe that this is the best way? Right? Like if, if mm -hmm. I, if I were, um, you know, fully accountable, which we should all think of ourselves as fully accountable. Is this the path that I would choose? You know, and if it's not, you really want to have a conversation with your team and, 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 you know, uh, and reflect yourself. Why, why aren't we doing the thing that you think is the easiest, fastest, best way to get to your goal? Like, why are you doing this other thing? So I think challenging and, and reflecting to make sure that you have conviction about your plan and that you are not just going through the motions is a good reminder um, to, to constantly, uh, check in on. Nice. Thank you. Let me ask another question that now goes from the habits. Now let's go to, um, a story or, or a moment of what people would consider failure that you thought probably at some point it was a failure, but it ended up becoming a, a, a growth catalyst. Maybe not at that moment, you did not see it, but over time you saw that, oh, thankfully that happened. Do you have any any episode like that? Yeah, I feel like it's it's not, um, I don't have a, a single kind of transformative moment for this, but I feel like this happens, um, you know, every week or every other week. There's something where, you know, I did a thing, I thought, I thought it would land, it didn't land, 
you know, with the, with the audience, whether the audience is, you know, my co-founders, uh, you know, on Twitter, um, my direct reports, like, you know, something didn't work the way that I wanted it to. And at the time it's, it's always a little bit disappointing. Um, and, and maybe even frustrating, you know? Um, but usually afterwards I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I'm glad that happened because I learned from it and I was able to see, um, I was able to challenge and, and sharpen my mental model around something. Right. So like maybe, you know, one quick example from recently, um, explaining an idea to, uh, to your team. Right. And like not, and, and let's say they don't, uh, they don't fully get it or there's a lot of confusion. Um, you can take that as, Oh, this really failed. Um, or you can think about it as, okay, like the way that I explained it, um, didn't resonate with this group. Uh, and they had a bunch of questions around these two areas. So in the, like, what is the pattern here? You know, um, how can I better address this, um, uh, in advance in the future? How can I empathize with the way that my audience, uh, receive this information so that I can proactively, um, address those points and prevent some of that, that misunderstanding. So I feel like stuff like that just, it happens, you know, all the time. Um, so I'm constantly kind of refining and making a mental note of like, oh, that was interesting. I thought X was going to happen, but actually Y happened. And I think actually moments like that happen um, every day, every week for us. You yeah. know, so you can either take those as, um, you know, you can either reflect on them or kind of just like not think about it. And, and I think it's better to reflect because you want to constantly hone your own um, predictive ability to, to hmm. get the, the result that you want. Um, and so, yeah, there's tons of opportunities, I think, on a, on a weekly basis to hone, to hone that. Thank you. Yeah, it, it's something what I would call the micro failures. Instead of having massive failures, learning from like those that. micro ones and then iterating. Also learning from micro micro successes as well, like you said, exactly. like you mentioned yes. in the beginning. Yes, huge. <laughs> nice. Thanks. I want to still be respectful of your time. Are we good with seven more minutes? Yes. Yeah, let's do it. Perfect. Cool. What is the definition of a successful day for you? Ooh, I would say a successful day is when I um, feel like uh, I've had very mentally engaging conversations with my team to figure something out. Mm. And it might be a challenge that we are working on. You know, with startups, there, there are many challenges uh, that, that we're currently tackling. Um, and so having a, a, a rigorous conversation where we uncover a certain insight or uh, get conviction around what we want to do um, and and really get excited about, about what we're doing, um, I think that, that most teams benefit from more thoughtful conversations around why are we doing what we're doing, um, how are we doing it? What's the strategy? Uh, how do we learn from the thing that we just executed? So um, I feel very, very fortunate that that the the team uh, that I work with uh, are um, are fellow nerds. I would say in this way that we we get excited <laughs> um, to to talk about work and to to unpack something and to learn from you know a recent campaign that we did and 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 really analyze it. So um, I think that mental stimulation. That's probably the, the the one term that I would say makes a successful day is when I feel uh, like there was a lot of intellectual and mental stimulation. Thank you. And I know, and just correct me if I'm wrong, one of your habits also to to have downtime is taking care of plants like the ones that you have back there, right? Yes. All the all these fellows. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Wes, 
what is something that you have unlearned in recent years that improved the quality of your life? Ooh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, I used to, I used to think that working hard meant that I needed to um, burn myself out. That my definition of of knowing when I was working hard enough was when I was about to break, like pushing myself to the very extreme um, and using brute force to, you know, more time, more effort, you know, always just like throwing more at something. Um, and, and in recent years, I've learned that that is not a sustainable way to, to run a marathon basically. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that is something that I've had to unlearn that, that, and I think it's something that I'm still unlearning, you know, uh, it's a pattern that's kind of, it's run deep. Um, and, and sometimes I feel guilty. Like if I'm not like exhausted, I feel a little bit guilty that I'm not like pushing myself hard enough, quote unquote. Um, and so that's something that, that I've unlearned a lot, but I'm still, you know, there's still remnants of it that I, that, you know, I need to be mindful of. Um, and, 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 uh, yeah, embracing a more sustainable, uh, approach or a more sustainable definition to what hard work is right. And what, what, um, what, what hard work really looks like. Right. And, and also, like you said, the ROI, understanding what is the ROI of the work that we are doing right now, and also what's going to be the ROI to ourselves as a, as a person, not only for the work that we're putting, but yes. what is the, the cost yeah, that we are paying for Nice. I really appreciate it. It is, it's, 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 I know that we can speak up for hours and I have so many notes. So hopefully we're going to have a second version of this in the future with you and when you guys have some time. But I wanted to ask you, where can people find you on the net? Yes, you can find Maven on Twitter at MavenHQ and Maven.com. And then you can find me at Wes underscore KO and WesKO.com. Thank you. And I would encourage everyone to please go and check every single one of her articles. They're amazing. Now, Wes, what is... Well, in this case, let me ask, this is usually the last question, the last question that we ask our guests in each is, if you could leave the audience with a question to expand their minds, what would that question be? Mm. I would ask, what makes your eyes light up and how can you do more of that in your daily work? Nice. And eyes light up. Let's define this little part for, for the yes. rest of the people. I know that there's a blog post there. Yes. So uh, I call uh, I call this idea eyes lighting up. And it's this idea that um, when we are viscerally, uh, naturally excited by something, our eyes light mm. up. You know, And you can apply this concept when talking to customers, but you can also apply it to yourself. So when it's talking to customers, you know, you might be telling your company's story or your own story. And, uh, you know, most people will listen pretty politely. Um, but you can kind of tell if they're, they're bored in certain parts of the story. And there'll be other parts of the story when their eyes light up. When you said something that triggers a reaction and they, you know, you can tell that they are now hanging on to your every word. They are now listening a bit more carefully than they were before. So, so I call this, this concept eyes lighting up, that you want to look for when other people's eyes light up 
as clues yeah. of how to talk about your product, how to talk about your brand, how to talk, talk about your story, um, and to, to know which boring parts to trim out. Um, so I'm, I, I also like applying this idea of eyes lighting up to, uh, ourselves that, you know, what yeah. are the things in your, in your work that make your eyes light up that you are naturally gravitate towards that you are naturally excited by and how can you craft a career that, uh, allows you to do more and more of the things that you are naturally good at, that, that, uh, you can yeah. add a lot of value from that you're excited by that make your eyes light up. Thank you for explaining. That is super helpful, Wes. Are there any other last messages that you would like to leave the audience of the podcast with? Um, yeah, I think one is uh, one that you are familiar with, the Maven Course Accelerator. Uh, so JJ was an alum in our Maven Course Accelerator. We just launched our latest cohort this week. So we have 200-some Uh, new experts who are currently building their courses. So if you are an expert who wants to share your knowledge and you want to build a course, uh, the Maven Course Accelerator is a free program that uh, allows you to do so. We teach you everything that you need to know end to end on how to create a course in the most efficient way possible. I personally teach the course. My team uh, helps run it. Uh, and uh, we'd love to meet a bunch more experts who uh, should be sharing their knowledge more broadly. Thank you, Wes. And definitely, I highly encourage everyone to take a look at what Wes is doing in the cohort-based course on how to build cohort-based courses. Super oh, meta, it's but it's free. totally worth so it. And it's a completely free. free course. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you very much. Yeah, and, and you will be able to also connect with other experts. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Wes. It's, it's been a pleasure to have you here on, on the show, and hopefully we will meet in the future as well. Thanks, JJ. If you guys enjoyed this conversation with Wes Kale from Maven, give it a thumbs up and subscribe to receive notifications for upcoming interviews. That's all for today. Keep learning and must, mostly keep optimizing. See you soon.